Kiss the name of the Lord. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Praise the name of the Lord. Appreciate you, Lord. Glory to God. Just remain standing for the reading of God's Word. Would you turn with me to St. Matthew, the seventh chapter? While you're turning to that chapter again, uh, these individuals is real interested in getting some names. Now, I made a mistake. They're wanting names of families that need toys for their children anywhere in Du Bois County. Now, if somebody would take that as a project to call around or to find out and get me those names, they're going to set up a place where these parents can come and pick the toys get what they feel like that their children would need or would like to have it's a, if it's available and they would know rather than just taking them what they think they would need. So it's any needy family we would like to have the names. Somebody just kind of take it on their self in uh, Bird's Eye here or in Huntingburg or any place else. There's needy family kids you don't think are going to get toys or at least very many of them. Why turn in the name and we can get it to these individuals. They're certainly wanting to do something for the Lord, and we appreciate that. Chapter 7 of St. Matthew. This is one of the chapters that makes us feel uncomfortable. Amen. Any of the verses in the Bible make you feel uncomfortable? They do me. I like all of them, but some of them, it just makes me feel real uncomfortable. Some of them I feel real good in because I'd adhered to those portions of it. And some of them I just feel uncomfortable because I feel like he's really talking to me. And, of course, that's the way you grow. Simply says, Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. What measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. And why beholdest thou the mote that is then in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye. Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, Let me pull out the mote out of thine eye, and behold, a beam is in thine own eye. Thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of thine own eye. Thou shalt see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. Give not that which is holy unto the dogs, neither cast your pearls before the swine, lest they be lest they trample them under their feet and turn again and rend you. Father, we thank you tonight for the reading of your word. We thank you also, Master, for the challenge that it gives us. Father, might we be receptive of the things that you will speak to us. And Father, might we leave here better men, women, boys, and girls than we was when we came. Father, this is what it's all about, and we appreciate you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Now, I'm not sure particularly if there is any particular reason why the Lord stopped me in this particular chapter other than perhaps maybe we all need it. All right? Haven't got my bow and arrow out and I haven't aimed it at anybody. My deer gun is not real handy, so I'm not going to hunt deer tonight. And I don't even have a slingshot. But I do have a sword, which is the Word of God. Amen. And the Bible says it's sharper than any two-edged sword. So what we ask tonight is just for your consideration as we delve into this very wonderful but yet ignored chapter. How many of you believe the Scripture when it says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments? How many believe that? How many of you believe that there is more than ten commandments? Amen. And everything that God asks of us is a commandment. So he's actually telling us that if we really love him, if we found the depths of love that he desires out of us, we will find his commandments and struggle to know what they are and to keep them. It's real intriguing that this chapter starts off with just a few words. And yet it becomes so involved. It simply says, judge not that you be not judged. But in careful consideration and study of that entire chapter, Jesus hinges the entire chapter 
of all the things that he talks about upon the ability of you and I or the readers to receive and be obedient to the first verse. Now, he doesn't write at random. There is a connection always in the Word of God, and especially where chapters are separated, it starts out on a new subject. And so realizing that, then we have to realize that he's talking considering the same subject and keeps the thread going throughout the entire chapter. Now, if you'll notice, and I'll just ask you to look at that in verse 7. It says, ask, seek, and knock. And these are promises, and that's why sometimes we fail to get what we ask for and fail to get what we seek for and fail to have a door opened when we're knocking upon it. Because verse 7 is contingent. The promises of verse 7 is contingent upon the obedience of verse 1. Amen. They're all tied in there together. So ask, seek, knock promises are contingent upon verse 1 that says, Judge not that you be not judged. And you walk on down a little bit. In verse 13, it talks about two ways. And what you've got to realize is which way you walk is dependent upon how you have mastered verse 1. You see, it all comes back to the heading of the chapter where it says, Judge not that you be not judged. It's important for us tonight as Christians to realize that. We have faltered a lot of times because we come to Jesus and we say, Lord, you said if we ask. And we quote this scripture to him, but we don't turn around and see that he, the heading of that individual chapter was, Judge not that you be not judged. And oftentimes we have given wrong judgments and been very judgmental upon individuals and yet unconsciously have done this and yet have asked God to fulfill promises that he will not fulfill except we fulfill the ones he set before us. And if you notice also in verse 15, there's two trees. And the type of fruit that you bear is connected to how you resolve verse 1 in your Christian life. What kind of fruit you're going to bring, whether it's good fruit or bad, is contingent upon how you have resolved verse 1, how you've made that applicable to your own life. And then you go on down to verses 21 to 23, and the judgments upon professing Christians is full proof that verse 1 has never been applied to their life. And so judgment falls upon them. And then going right on down, you find verse 24 talking about two foundations. And this shows a wise man building his house upon a rock. This man had adhered to verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. And therefore he's able to build a solid life. Because he's been obedient to the scripture. And also the foolish man thought that the writings was completely alienated from him. and He didn't have to pay any attention to that. So he proceeds to build him a house. And this house falls. Because it's not based upon a foundation. And people who live out their lives judging and condemning others will in the end suffer a great fall. It never fails. This is in your Bible. So you see, when it starts off with that real small uh, scripture, verse 1, Judge not that you be not judged. It introduces a whole clear chapter to you and lays before us things that can be ours if we'll just simply heed what he's trying to tell us on condemnation. And after all, when we look at it, what would you say the job of the church is? Condemnation or restoration? I think the job of the church naturally is restoration. And then can you see why the church is not being restored? It's because the church, and I'm talking about all of us in general, some of us willfully and some of us ignorantly, of course the church has taken on the job of condemnation. We have thought perhaps that it is our job to do the condemning. Friend, if there's any condemning done anytime, anywhere, 
It better be by the Holy Ghost of God. The Holy Ghost of God had better do the condemning. And it better come under the unction and anointing of Almighty God. When you read chapter 7 verse 1, the context makes it very clear to us that the things that's condemned here is the disposition of individuals to look unfavorably upon the character and the actions of others. And this attitude invariably leads us to pronounce rash judgments. It leads us to pronounce unjust judgments. And it leads us to pronounce unloving judgments upon other people completely contrary what the Bible has said, judge not that you be not judged. Now the Lord is aiming at the spirit of condemnation, Of the spirit we have when we're doing the condemning. When we're uh, justifying ourselves. And uh, we are prohibited. You know what prohibit means, don't you? I mean, God has prohibited us. He has censored us as individuals, not to make a rash, unjust, unloving judgment of our fellow man. And when we do this, it is in complete, direct disobedience to the Word of God. So you see, in doing that, there is no wonder that we don't get a lot of things we ask for. Amen? That we don't get a lot of things we seek for. And that a lot of doors remain closed when we knock on them. Because we have, at the beginning, walked completely contrary to what God has said concerning that. And God prohibits us. In other words, he gives us a direct command. Don't make a rash, unjust, unloving judgment of anybody. Regardless whether you feel like they deserve it or not. That scripture will stand on its own. Doesn't need any help from anybody else. And you ask, well, why does God prohibit us from doing that? Well, he explains that. Because of our readiness, and we're all human enough, and I'm talking to all of us tonight. That's just forget about pointing a finger, get a looking glass, stand in front of it, see your old ugly mug right there and say, God's talking to me. All right? And it's because of our readiness to observe the faults of others. There isn't any question in anybody's mind that we all can see something wrong in everybody else. You just as well say amen. Because we have the ability to sit back and find the best person in the world, the holiest person in the world, we can find something wrong with them if we want to. And that's why God prohibits us. Direct commandment given us that we don't make this judgment because we have the ability to see our fellow man's fault. But the question is, why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye? In other words, some commentators say, why do you see the splinter in your brother's eye? And also he prohibits us from doing that because of our failure to observe the faults of our own. As he points out, why do you not consider the beam or the rafter that is in thine own eye? And also he gives it because of our readiness to determine God's our unwillingness and our unreadiness to realize that the judgments we make, unjust, unfair, or any judgment we make upon our fellow man is the way God is going to judge us. And God being a good God, and God being a kind God, and God being a loving Heavenly Father does not want to make a condemnation on us and a judgment on us. And so he prohibits us from making a judgment and a condemnation on somebody else. Because he's saying someplace down the line, in this life, or when you face the judgment seat of Christ, he's going to judge you just as harshly as you have judged your fellow man. And friend, I think we ought to believe that tonight. 
I think if we actually did, it would put such a fear in us that we would be afraid to bring any condemnation or railing accusation against anybody. And that's completely... Now, we say, in other words, how can we? We're human. I've had this question asked. Well, knowing we all do it, and this individual said, I'm guilty, you are. Everybody else is guilty. And knowing we all do it and we're all human, how in God's name can we heed this censorship? How can we listen to what God has to say and be obedient to His command? Well, number one... We can start by this, being concerned about our own shortcomings, which according to the scripture is probably more serious than the shortcomings of the individual we're trying to point out to. Didn't the Bible say that? This is a splinter in his eye, but you got a rafter in yours. How are you going to see clearly like that? See, all you'll have is a prejudiced view of something, a blind view of what you think is in this individual's life. And then you can seek to remedy your, your own condition before we try to reprove our brother for his actions. Have you ever thought about what that would entail? I sat for quite a bit in my office this morning and par partially this evening. And I wondered, what would that entail? I got to thinking that if I was noticeable of my own condition and did my best to remedy what was the matter with me, I wouldn't have too much time trying to take care of somebody else's condition and somebody else's life. Right. And you see, the Lord knew this. And that's why he put a censorship on it. And that's why he told us to heed it. And he told us how to do it. In other words, when you're considering a condemnation on somebody else, when you're considering a judgment on somebody else, be sure first you look at your own life. Don't look down my neck unless yours is clean. Amen? And don't look down somebody else's life unless yours is clean. That's actually what God's trying to say. And he's trying to let us know it's actually it's a dangerous thing. You know what the Bible tells us is going to happen when we're disobedient to the command of God? And then we ought to remember this. I've heard individuals say, well, someplace they've got to be judged, and they do. And we've got to remember this, that we shall all appear before a righteous judge. Now, Romans 14.10 talks about Christians, and it simply says this, But why dost thou judge thy brother? Or why dost thou set it not, thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. In other words, he's trying to say that in all actuality, the judge is not us. That judge is Christ. And there is a place of judgment for the saints of God. Not the great white throne judgment where sinners are judged, but the judgment seat of Christ where we come as Christians are judged according to the works in the flesh. And rewarded according to the works in the flesh. Now there's four things that we ought to do before we pass judgment on our brother. Number one, make sure we know all the facts. Now like I said, I'm not sure I'm in this, why I'm in this other than we all need it. And other than Jesus loves us enough that he liked to talk to us. He liked to spare us difficulties. He liked to spare us failures. He liked to spare us having to be judged as we judge somebody else. He loves us that much. So let's don't be rash. Most of us make rash judgments on one another. We really do. Amen? We just read it. We see one part one sentence of something in somebody's life and we condemn their whole life by that one little thing that's standing out there and that's a rash judgment. We don't know the whole story. That's why the Bible asks us to be careful about condemnation. Be careful. And he tells you don't make a rash judgment. Don't jump at conclusions. Search out and find out what's going on. And then make sure we understand the motives that are involved in that individual. Be just because Christ is just. Sometimes we make unjust judgments. 
I mean, we don't know that person's relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes we don't know their, their life. We see their failures. We, we never see them on their knees and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ forgiving them again and again and again. We don't see this. And so we make judgments on the merits of what we see with our carnal eyes. And Jesus knows we're going to do this if we follow after the flesh. So he says, just don't make any judgments. Just don't make any condemnations. Leave that to me, is what he's saying. Of course, after all, is there anybody holy enough to make a judgment but Jesus? Is there anybody that can read my life? Has there anybody that can walk a mile in my shoes? Has there anybody that knows my upcomings and downfallings other than Jesus Christ of Nazareth? He's not saying this so much about the individual we condemn. He's talking to us because we're the sufferers. We're the ones that's going to have the problems. And make sure we ourselves are, not, are, are unprejudiced and make sure we're loving and number four is make sure we ourselves are righteous before God, walking in all the commandments of the Lord, blameless. Luke 1.16. And when we find this place in our life, then we have an open book to become a judge. Now I'm wondering if very many of us sitting here tonight, that God gives an open book and says, you be the judge. How many are righteous before God, walking in all the commandments of the Lord blameless? Now this is a spirit. Now he's not talking about that thing in which carnal man, I need to get that over again, in which the Adamic nature does. The Adamic nature is simply prone for condemnation. It's prone to fault find. It's prone to talk about somebody else. And I'm talking about a spirit that drives us beyond the human nature until our whole life is set up as if we're judge and jury of the whole church world. And we make it brashly, we make it unloving. And there is some reason and something that causes this condemning spirit. I'd like for us to turn, if we could, to 1 Peter 4.15. I'm sure you're aware of these scriptures. I'm sure that if we just look at it, then Christ will deal with our lives. 1 Peter 4 and 15. Simply says, But let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief, or as an evildoer. Now most of us are fairly aware that a murderer's place is in a pit of fire. Most of us are aware that a thief lands the same place and all evildoers land in the same place. And I wonder if we're aware that busybodies are placed in the same category. As it simply says, or as a busybody in other men's matters. Amen or oh me? I mean, how are we going to escape if we place a murder in hell and we continue to do this and just poke our nose in somebody else's business and in somebody else's life and read their pedigree and unchristianize them and their walk? How can we make the separation? The Bible doesn't do it. What right do I have to do it? And then, of course, we simply have to read another one, 2 Corinthians 3 and 11. I want to read those scriptures to you, so in case you don't know they're in there, that we'll be sure that they are. 2 Thessalonians 3 and 11 says, For we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly, working not at all, but are busybodies. I don't know whether you know that or not, but he was talking to a church. Have busybodies in church? I would suspect. I would imagine you could probably find them everywhere. Individuals that have nothing better to do than just run somebody else's life for them. 
And there again, we're censored from doing this. We're prohibited by law, God's law. Means just as much as a commandment that says, Thou shalt not kill. It's the same case, the same penalty that says, Judge not that you be not judged. Amen. Just as serious as thou shalt not steal. Just as serious as thou shalt not commit adultery. Just as serious. You mean to tell me, Brother Hoskell? That being a tail carrier and a gossiper is just as bad as being a murderer? Have you ever imagined that a man can be killed in his mortal body and he still has a chance for salvation? That you kill his spirit and he has none? People's characters have been assassinated by individuals that have nothing better to do than knows an individual's affair. And the scripture stands, don't make a judgment. You're not allowed to. Just as serious as any Ten Commandments there is. And just as important that we adhere to that. Put that on your little chain and carry it around as the Eleventh Commandment if you want to. Because it is vastly important. And there is consequence of a spirit that is condemning it clouds reason. Anybody that has a spirit of condemnation can't reason. They don't have any reason about them. They get somebody's life on their line. Somebody they feel like has perverted Christianity, has walked the wrong way, and any amount of reasoning fails to reach them because their spirit of condemnation has taken control and it's clouded their reason. They see nothing other than what they see. And also it prevents some peace and contentment in the heart. Because the Bible tells us in more ways than one that hate destroys the hater, not the hated. And then it exposes us. And this is the bad part, and this is why it's censored. It exposes us to the same condemning spirit by God himself. God is telling us as rashly and unjustly as you judge, these things will be meted to you. And then it brings the righteous judgment of Almighty God upon us, whether it be in this life, or in the life to come. Now we ask ourselves the question, is there a cure for such a spirit? I mean, it's the easiest thing in the world to get caught up in it. And I'm doubting very seriously. And I'm talking about us here. I said I'm talking about us. I doubt very seriously. And what there's one setting here, but what at one time or another, has not been caught up in this spirit. And sometimes it gets so habitual that we do it without thought. As if God has set us judge and jury. And allowed us to make the judgments. Well, there's a cure for that. I think he pointed that out before, but let's do it again. An earnest examination of ourselves. I'm going to say it again. When we feel as if we're ready to make a judgment or a condemnation on somebody else, take some time to see where you live. Take some time to see if your house is swept and garnished. Take some time to look honestly at your own self. And once we do, we'll be too busy looking at our own faults. To be able to see fault number one in anybody else. God means that. That's what he tells us. Just begin to look at ourselves, And then an humble reliance upon the saving grace. Man, in an enormous extent. And yet he'll be unconscious of that. How many of you realize that? Oh, I know of sins in there. No, you don't. You start living in it so much, doing it so much, condemnation not there anymore. So, And it says now you could have a rafter in your eye. And you're trying to spot a little splinter in this individual's eye. He just as well as said, probably there's more sin in your life than there is in this one. And number two, however unconscious of our own sins, we're always going to be well aware of somebody else's. 
I mean, they could have the same sin in their life as we, but we're going to see theirs because it glares more. And probably because we're looking at their life a little bit closer than we ever look at our own. After all, I've been saved and filled with the Holy Ghost and baptized in Jesus' name. La-dee-da. How about that? What does that give you? It gives you power to be an overcomer. But if you're going to have lights, you have to turn on the switch. You have to use it. And you have to become aware that these shortcomings are there. And it also shows us that self-improvement is a necessary qualification for, for the improvement of others. In other words, if you're going to improve somebody else's life, you have to improve yours first. What is it it says in there? First cast out the beam that's in thine own eye. In other words, you want to make a better life? You want to straighten somebody else's life out? You want to help them to be a better person? Become a better person yourself. All right, that's what it says. First cast out the beam out of thine own eye. Now this Dr. Marsh says critics see more than there is and they make up the rest. And he also says if we are fully occupied, or we will be fully occupied if we keep our own doorstep clean. So as we often see in others what is really in ourselves. Even the best judgment of the most qualified, he says, should be most cautiously expressed. And this man goes on to say, I have become so fully occupied in praising the Lord and in thinking of his goodness and where he has brought me from and where I could have been and where I am now that I have no time for criticism of anything or anybody. In other words, when our mouth is filled with praise, there's no room for nothing else. And that's why God tells us praise is important. When we come to the verge of looking at somebody's life and want to judge that, wouldn't it be nice if we'd back off someplace, lift our hands to the heaven, and thank God for the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Ghost. And once we did that, he would so enthrill us with his power, we would forget all about the condemnation, all about the judgments that we were going to make on somebody else. The church's responsibility, now first let's notice in John 3, 17 and 18, For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, that the world through him might be saved or restored. And then according to Galatians 6, 1, and let's read that too, we'll close in just a minute. Galatians 6, 1, according to that, that actually has been left to us. And this is what he says. Now this is a far cry. From condemnation, it says, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, and that word is sin, if a man be overtaken in a sin, ye which are spiritual, condemn this individual. Kick him around a little bit. Didn't say that? I wonder why we do that. Oh, we don't? Why, you know we do. Amen. It simply says, restore such a one in the spirit of weakness or meekness. And why do you want to do that? You want to do that because you're selfish. Because he says, considering thyself. Don't just be considering him all the time, but considering yourself. Lest thou also should be tempted. And you'd want the same judgment you give them to be upon you. Amen, Brother Hoskloff. How we don't need that? Yes, you do. The world would be a better place to live in and the church would be more powerful and we would be more overcoming if we could listen to that one little scripture that begins a chapter. Judge not that ye be not judged. God's left us commission. Not a commission of condemnation. The word of God will come and it will itself condemn. 
When I stand and minister the word of God under the unction and power of God, it is not my job to condemn. It is the words I speak under the anointing of God that does the condemning if there's any done at all. How many of you believe tonight that God speaks through ministers? Let's ask God's mouthpiece that he uses them. And a man that's worth his salt, and not all of them are, I guarantee you that. And a man that's worth his salt is going to speak the words God puts in his life and puts in his heart. Not to tear down, but to upbuild. Not to keep us down there, but to raise us up there and let us be better Christians. And more aware than anything else of the shortcomings of one another and make a restoration process. Not a process of condemnation. Look, whenever I've been overtaken in a sin, I don't need anybody to condemn me. I've already been condemned. I mean, I suffer a lot. Yes, I you sin, preacher, I sure do. Don't look at me so funny, you do too. Amen. But what he's trying to tell us is this, look, let's kindly help one another here. And whenever I sin, this thing in me, this Holy Ghost and this Word of God condemns me. I'm living under condemnation. I don't need anybody else to condemn me. I need somebody to come take me by the hand and say, Hey, look, we're going to make an end together. It's not our job. We have some strong warnings about murmuring and criticizing I don't know if we ever heed them or not Psalms 1 and 1 says blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly we can quote that can't we nor standeth in the way of sinners nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful now it might surprise you that coming from that word actually that uh, ancient Hebrew word also in our English means criticizer or complainer. So he's saying, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor setteth in the seat of the criticizer, complainer, or the condemner. Exodus numbers the A number one reason how all the children of Israel except two died in the wilderness. A number one reason at the bottom and basis of it all was because they sat in the seat of the complainer, the criticizer, and the condemner. Made some rash judgments on the leadership. And they wasn't condemning Moses. They was condemning God. Of course, God chose the leadership. And many of us don't realize that. That when we sat in the seat of the criticizer and condemner, And we're condemning what God has done. We're not condemning the man. We're condemning God. Because God is the one. When we condemn our brother and criticize our brother, we're condemning God because God said he has set them in the body as it has pleased him. And so the bottom line is we're getting on to God. It might hurt our feelings to be condemned or judged. But the individual hasn't really judged us. He's judged the God that called us and set us in the body of Christ. Philippians 2, 14, 15 says, Do all things without murmuring or criticizing and disputings. Why do you want to do this? And this is what he says. And this is the only way that we're going to be able to live like this. That you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom you shine as whites of the world. Now how are we going to shine? It all comes back to Matthew 7, 1. Judge not that you be not judged. Because there's a certain thing that kind of puts a shade on our lights. 
It said it in there, do all things without criticizing, without condemning, and without disputing. Because if you do, you're going to be blameless, harmless, the sons of God without rebuke in the midst of a crooked, reverse nation, among whom you shine as lights of the world. We wonder sometimes why light's not so bright. Too many judgments. Too much time spent in gossip, criticism, rather than prayer and restoration. 1 Corinthians 10.10 says, Neither murmur or criticize ye, as some of them also murmured, criticized, and was destroyed of the destroyer. Now that's strong language. But if we're disobedient to command of God, where does that place us? We're in jeopardy, aren't we? Of the seven churches of Asia... Only two of those churches had no glaring sin that enveloped the whole church. That was Smyrna and Philadelphia. Ephesus has gotten so involved in her works and in her labors that she had forgotten to love. I see Ephesus church everywhere. I mean churches, individuals at one time, and churches had the love of God. That was first and foremost. That shined the brightest. That was the thing that held them together. And then they got involved in their programs and their ideas and in their opinions. And in all of this, they forgot how to love one another. So the condemnation of God comes upon them and tells them, unless they make this straight and repent, they're not going to make it. Pergamos and Thyatira had gotten so tolerant that anything was acceptable to them just so they wouldn't be branded as intolerant and unsociable by the community. Is there any churches like this around? <laughs> yes, there is. I mean, you don't have to look very far to see them. You just get tolerant of anything. Anything will be just fine just so we won't be branded by that individual out there that says, oh, they're really intolerant. They're unsociable. We do whatever we can. Friend, listen, the community is going to look up to you if you'll take God's brand of salvation and live it. They're going to respect you for that. But you claim one thing and walk another and they're going to know you're a hypocrite and there's no respect for you. No respect for the church you go to and the God you represent. Sardis had grown weary and had forgotten the things that she had heard, and therefore her garments were spotted. Laodicea had become proud of her accomplishments and had not given God the glory. Now the percentage, when you look at that, is not good. And out of all of them that was asked to repent, according to history, only Sardis heeded the Spirit. What it said to her and repented and become the light that she should have in a darkened world. That's one out of five, or 20%. Ephesus didn't love Pergamos continued to compromise. Thyatira continued to compromise. Laodicea stayed with her pride. So actually, what are we, saints? We're living in a world that is standing, gauging the walk of God's people. Now, we're always going to be judged by outsiders. I mean, they're going to judge your life. They're going to judge you harshly. They're going to judge you unjustly. They're going to judge you the wrong type of judgment. And that's fine. That comes from individuals that don't know God, that doesn't adhere to God's commandment. So if we're being judged by the outside world, and then we're being judged by God Almighty, then it stands to reason we've got enough judges that we really don't need any more. That we should stand on the threshold of God and realize this. There is a spirit of complaining. There is a spirit of criticizing. There is a spirit of condemnation. If this telephone, which is a wonderful invention, was used to upbuild the kingdom and cause of Christ and the greatness of Almighty God, one-third as much as it's used for complaining, criticizing, and tearing down individuals, we could set the world on fire with the gospel. Amen. So it's contingent on how we live. Contingent on what God's commandments mean to us. What do they mean? I mean, can we dismiss this uncomfortable portion of this scripture and walk away from it as if it doesn't exist? 
and yet walk right through the rest of it and say, God, you said if I'd ask, you'd give it to me. If I seek, I'd find it, but knock and be opened. And some way find a way to condemn God because he doesn't do that and all the time. Number one has never been realized in a life and never been fulfilled. Then he says, Enter ye at the straight gate for the way in 13, the widest the gate, broadest the way that leadest to destruction. And many there be that go thereat. Two ways. Which one do we find? It all depends on what we do with verse 1. What type of fruits on our tree? What are we bearing? All depends on what we have done with verse 1. So what type of fruit we're going to have on our tree? Also, what about those in the 23rd verse that said, Then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. They have failed, verse 1. And let me reiterate that one more time. As long as we are content with being judgmental, then we're setting ourselves for a spiritual fall in our life. Because we can't see where we're going. We don't take time out to find out what's wrong with us. We're too busy finding out what's wrong with somebody else. Church wife, all of us, at one time or another. Don't sit there and look at me and tell me you've never been. You have, or maybe now even. Might even been today. We've sat back and looked at somebody's life. Made a judgment on it. Maybe have repeated that judgment to somebody else. And they have repeated it to somebody else. And they have repeated it to somebody else. And it's been a judgment that never should have been made in the first place. And you wouldn't have made it if you would have heeded what the Bible says. That if you would have first looked at yourself. I mean honestly. I mean look deep. Look past those flaming blue eyes. That nice smile that smiles back at you from that mirror and says, Oh, what a good boy am I. <laughs> look past all of that. Look into the depths of this humanity. And see what's wrong with it. You're going to see a lot wrong with it. And then by the time you get that taken care of, the day will be gone. And you won't have any time. It's time to go to bed. You won't have any time to get on anybody else's case. And then you start off the next day the very same way. And weeks have gone by and you haven't criticized a soul. You haven't condemned anybody. You haven't made a judgment on anybody other than yourself. And i tell you this, friend. I don't ever, I don't ever want to meet Jesus Christ as my judge. I want him to have judged me here. And when I meet him, I want to meet him as my king. You know how we can stop that from being judged by God? Judge yourself. And judge yourself righteously. And that way when we come before the judgment seat of Christ, we're already going to have been judged. And he just looks at us and says, Well done, thy good and faithful servant. Come on in and reward us. Would you like to stand? And if it wouldn't be a lot of problems, you're not too mad, would you mind just coming to the altar and standing here and just saying to yourself and to God, God, I am really sorry. Now I'm going to do my best. I'll be a little bit more careful in the future than I have been in the past. Because I want souls to be saved. I want life to be salvaged. I want the world to see Christ in me in the hope of glory. I want a change in my life. I want to see a change in my church. I want to see a change in my community.
And most of all, God, I want it to start with me. Would you just lift your hands, your eyes, or whatever? Father, we approach you tonight. We thank you, Master, because you're mindful enough of us to bring a challenge, Father, to her heart and to her life. Master, we realize that we're not immune to this. We realize, Father, that the powers of the enemy are so strong. But we realize that thou art still stronger. So what we're asking, Masters, we stand before you, is for you to reveal ourself to us. Let us see ourselves, Master, as you do. And let us spend some time, Master, in prayer, in adoration, in crying, O God, before you. Repenting, Master, of all things that's unlike you. To stand in your presence cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. Made whole by the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, that we might walk not contrary to your ways. But realize, Father, that we are not to condemn. We have been censored from doing that. You have prohibited us, Master, from making a judgment. When you told us to judge not, that we be not judged. Father, might we realize everything in that chapter is contingent on how we handle the first verse. Father, take our lives tonight. I can only speak for myself and others for themselves. Father, take our lives tonight. Bring us to complete recognition. Father, let us see your glory. For when we see your glory, Father, we see the rottenness of our own self. When we approach you and your greatness and your power, Father, we're simply slain by that power and we recognize the rottenness that enters into our bones. Father, as we humbly confess our failures, our many mistakes, Father, the many ways that we walk that's contrary to you, Master, take us as individuals, take us as a church. Father, we should be a city set on a hill. Master, there are individuals watching our lives, watching our walks, listening to our talk. God, let us be a restorer of souls. Father, let us be a restorer of that which is good. Let us realize that's our job. And let us walk in the light as you are the light. Realize we have fellowship one with another. God, take care of us. Forgive us. We know you love us. Lord, might we return that love by learning from you. In Jesus' precious name. Amen. Hallelujah.